Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I heard the story a while back about uh, an elderly couple, um, you know, well on in years, married, you know, like 50 years, something like that, uh, maybe more. And uh, one night, um, as they were laying in bed, you know, the wife was feeling, you know, just a little, you know, not quite loved as she used to be, and, you know, maybe a little disturbed by it, and, uh, and she, as we're laying in bed, she just turned to her husband and she said, you know, when we were first married, you used to sleep a lot closer to me. And the husband scooted over in the bed and got a little bit closer, and then she said, you know, when we were first married, you used to hold me and cuddle me and, and hold me in your arms until I fell asleep. He kind of thought a little bit, so he scooted over and he kind of put an arm around her and kind of held her. And she said, you know, when we were first married, he used to nibble on my ear. <laughs> he threw off the covers and got out of bed and she said, where are you going? He said, I had to go get my teeth. <laughs> I think that's God's design, you know that? that we would be in a committed relationship like that long enough to have to go get our teeth. <laughs> this series, um, we have been taking a very honest and upfront look at, at God's design for our sexuality. And um, it's an important topic because it's probably one of the strongest of all human drives and urges. And we live in a sex-saturated culture. So that leaves a lot of room, a lot of room for confusion and distortion, and all kinds of mixed messages. And so this morning, what I'd like us to do is take a look at distorted sexuality, not an exhaustive list of, you know, appropriate and inappropriate behavior, not a bunch of lists, you can do this, you can't do that, I'm not going to go there, all right? Uh, may use some examples for that, but, but really what I want to do is, going back to looking at God's design and God's intent for our sexuality, and using that as the pattern, and that kind of that is the standard for comparison. I want to take a look at this whole idea of distorted sexuality. Um, and believe me, you know, as we, as we address this cop topic, I, I want to continue to do it with a great deal of care and humility and compassion because I know this is stuff that's like really, really close to our hearts. Um, it goes actually to the very heart of our personhood. And, and there's always a good possibility of being misunderstood. So I'm going to do my best to be clear this morning. Um, and with all of this, by the way, the underlying foundation in all of this has to be grace. It has to be grace. Because we, live in a, we are faulty, imperfect people, and we live in a faulty, imperfect world. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have something good for us. So we're going to look at distorted sexuality this morning. And I kind of broke it down into three general categories. Um, they have to do with our personhood. They have to do with our desires, and they have to do with responsibility and commitment. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning. If you want to pull out your outlines, we're going to look at, you know, how, how, how does our sexuality get distorted? What are some of the ways in which sexuality gets distorted in our culture today? One of the ways is that our sexuality gets distorted when it becomes separated from the whole of our lives. Compartmentalized, if you will. Um, and let me explain that a little bit, because it goes back to God's design. God's design was for a union of whole persons. All the way back in Genesis 2, 18, God in the creating work of, that he was doing said, It is not good for man to live alone. I will make a suitable companion 
to help him. Now, typically in churches, Christian churches particularly, the emphasis has been on helper part, okay? But that's not where the emphasis lies. The emphasis lies in suitable. And, and the whole idea of helper is to be an ally, to be a, a support, to be a companion, to do life together. Not a gopher, not a subordinate, not a minion, but two whole people coming together. That's what God had in mind. And in, before the fall in the garden, they worked together, they played together, they shared life together, fully integrated lives with each other. And I think that's God's design. In fact, it goes on. It says, verse 24, and the two, when God's talking about what's going to happen here, it says, the two will become one flesh, the man, and it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. In other words, there was nothing inappropriate between them. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Has anybody else had the dream where, like, you forgot to put your pants on? <laughs> I won't ask for a show of hands, but maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But, you know, you, can, you used to have it a lot more. Boy, there's a whole lot of therapy there, probably. Um, yeah. But, you know, you, you, you know, you spend the whole dream, if you haven't had this dream, you spend the whole dream covering up, trying to find, where did my, where did my pants go? You know, I got to school and I don't have my pants. You know? and, 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 it's, and there's this whole sense of, of having to cover up. And there's this protective impulse that we have about our nakedness. And the reason for that is, is because though it may be appropriate to go to a beach in nothing but shorts, it's inappropriate to walk around the streets in nothing but shorts. There's some inappropriateness about that. And it has to do with this difficulty that we have now because of the fall, the difficulty we have being able to relate to other people as whole persons without sexuality getting into the mix. In every way, in every relationship, at some level, there's a little bit of sexuality that is tinged in every interaction that we have. And it has to do with what happened in the fall. See, when we compartmentalize our sexuality and separate it off from the rest of our lives, what happens, what happens is it distorts and dehumanizes sexuality in general. And that's where the great danger is, by the way, in voyeurism and pornography and strip clubs and magazines and online and all that kind of stuff. The problem with that is the great distortion of that is it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. You don't have to engage in any conversation. You don't have to do any chores. You don't have to have any responsibilities. No promises involved. But with that, there is no love. There's no vulnerability. There's no intimacy. There's no sharing life together in fantasy world. And see, when we take our sexuality and we separate it from the rest of our lives, it becomes a fantasy. And that's a distortion of what God intended because God's design was for a mutually accepting and supporting and growing relationship of whole people that together we are growing. We are becoming more well-rounded. We are becoming whole people. It's what, second, what Peter wrote about in his second letter. He says, build on what you've been giving, given, complementing your basic faith with good character. Spiritual understanding, alert discipline, passionate patience, reverent wonder, warm friendliness, and generous love. That is a well-rounded person. 
And that's what God's design is. And when you separate sex from the rest of your life, it takes sex and moves it in a whole different direction, in the opposite direction of its design and intent. And that's why when they had gone ahead and eaten of the fruit that they had been told not to eat of, when they saw that, it said both, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Now, why does the Bible put such emphasis on that? Why does it talk about them being naked and unashamed and now they realize that they were both naked? What happened? The relationship took a fundamental change where there had been no inappropriateness between either of them when they had shared life together, fully entwined, fully integrated, whole people with whole people, whole persons with whole persons, all of that. Now, now in the relationship, now what's entered into the picture? Enticement and accusation and suspicion and failure and blame. The relationship had been damaged. And since that moment, it has made it difficult for people to relate to other people as whole persons. We, are, we become a compilation of a lot of different things, but not a whole person. And so when, when our sexual lives, our sexuality becomes separated from the whole of our life, that's what happens. That's why it's a distortion. It's one way in which our sexuality gets distorted. Another way is when physical pleasure becomes a self-centered goal. When physical pleasure becomes the end, the self-centered goal. Because God designed sex to move us into a deeper personal communion with one another. That's what he designed it for. Again, going back to Genesis 1. God created human beings in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And it was very good. It was designed to deepen relationship. And when you share sexual intimacy with another person, you get as close as humanly possible to touching another person's soul. I believe that. God designed sex to be an expression of oneness in the giving and receiving of pleasure in the touching of one another's souls God designed it that way he also he also designed it as the means by which human beings participate in the creation of life think about that that it is that part of being created in the image of God and he did it in such a way as to make it a pleasurable experience. <laughs> I mean, think about this. Let's say you're out working in your yard on a really, really hot summer afternoon, okay? And you've been working all day, you know, you've been planting, mowing, all this stuff. Or maybe you've been out working out, you know, or something. But it's just, it's a really, really hot day. And you have just been pouring sweat and you're just, you're dying and you're so dehydrated. And you come into the house and sitting on the counter is a tall, frosty glass of ice water. And you grab that and you drink it down in one gulp if you can. And you say to yourself, that is the best tasting water I have ever had. But water doesn't taste. 
But the desire fulfilled is a pleasurable experience. And God has done that with everything about us. God designed human life to be maintained by built-in pleasure. That's why food tastes so good. (laughs) Because God designed life to be sustained in that way. It is a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. And when pleasure becomes the goal, then our sexuality becomes distorted and it becomes selfish. Because sex is a desire. It is an urge. It is an impulse. It is a drive. In other words, it is a want. It is not a need. I know, I just lost half of you right there. You know, it's like, <laughs> I was tracking with you up to that point. Hold the phone, you know. I had you, I had you. If you were stranded on a desert island, all by yourself, what do you really need? You need food. You need hydration. You need water. You need some protection from the elements, shelter of some kind. Maybe clothing, but maybe not. You're all alone. You could be naked and unashamed. (laughs) Maybe fire to just help get you through the night kind of a thing. You know, just keep you warm. But you do not need sex. You could survive on a desert island without sex. It may not be pleasurable, but you could survive. Because it is a want, it is not a need. And one of the problems with our society and our culture is we have elevated sex to the status of need. We have made an idol out of it. And it is not. That's a distortion. That is an improper place. And we have this mentality that if any relationship in our culture, if any relationship gets even halfway serious, it has to end up in bed. And that just isn't true. That is a distortion. We go to the movies. I love action-adventure movies. Okay, you know, the shoot-em-up chase scenes, all that stuff. You know, and you go and you watch one of these movies. And, and here this guy, he is running from people that are trying to kill him. He doesn't know why. So he kidnaps this girl and her car. And they drive all over crazy car chase all over Europe. They're shot at explosions all over the place. And somehow that relationship ends up in bed. Yeah. Being kidnapped, racing through the streets, being shot at. That's what turns me on. But that is the picture that our culture paints. We go to those movies and Betty says, oh yeah, that's real. (laughs) But that is the picture that our culture paints. And we have made an idol of sex. We have made it a need. And it is not. It is a want. It is a strong want. But it is not a need. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And the pursuit of pleasure in itself, in any way, becomes a distortion. And it takes us in the opposite direction of what God intended. It makes it selfish. And what it really does is contributes to our isolation instead of relationship. And here's the thing. By itself, pleasure 
is an insatiable creature. You will never have enough. That's where pleasure goes. Any kind of pleasure. Overindulgence. It always leads that way because if that becomes the end in itself, it needs one more thing, just a little bit more to make it more desirable and more pleasurable the next time. Again, Paul, writing this time to the Ephesian church, he describes this life. He says, having been separated from the life of God, they've lost all sensitivity and given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That's where desire always leads. And we have enough people in our church family who come from addictive and compulsive behaviors that will say, that is so absolutely true. Any pleasure... Any pleasure when it becomes the end in itself always leads to more because the pattern that is ingrained and the pleasure that is received continues to stamp and imprint itself in the pattern of our life and becomes incredibly difficult to break. And I have done enough counseling with people dealing with sexual addictions and compulsions to tell you when desire becomes an end, in itself, it becomes selfish and isolating, and it is never, never satisfied. And the truth is, in people that I have counseled that deal with this, what they have really been looking for all of their lives is a loving, caring relationship, an intimacy with someone. And it's kind of like the song, looking for love in all the wrong places. It's a distortion of our sexuality. And there's a third way. That our sexuality becomes distorted when it violates or ignores the marriage covenant. When it violates or ignores the marriage covenant, God set very deliberate and specific boundaries. And he did it for our good. And sex is meant to be a celebration and an enhancement of our oneness It is meant to deepen our commitment to one another. This is what God said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. There is a very deliberate process. There is the letting go of one relationship in which there was absolute loyalty and absolute caring for and moving to another relationship. It now becomes that relationship in my life, the primary relationship in my life. It's described as a two-part process. There is both the leaving and then there is the uniting. It is a very deliberate choice. It is an all-out commitment. Heart and soul, body and spirit, loyalty, trust, intentionality, exclusivity are all parts of the package. Now, let me say, I will not be naive enough to say that that's the guarantee. If you get married, you get all that. Because I know that's not true. But what God says is for true intimacy and for all these other stuff stuff to really happen, for those really to happen, the best environment, the best circumstances, the best situation, the way I designed it to be, is in a mutually committed covenant of marriage. And that is very, very different from living together. And it is very, very different from giving it a trial run to see if we're compatible. Oh, please. (laughs) I can tell you right now you're not. You're not 
compatible? That's why you need the marriage covenant. (laughs) To get you through the places where you're not compatible. That's the whole idea. And I get so tired of hearing people say things like, well, it's just a piece of paper. And I want to say, in fact, I heard this. It's great. I said, what if your employer came to you on payday and said, you know, I really like your work. I'd really like to take care of you. But, you know, it's just a piece of paper. (laughs) Or you spent four years in college and spent all that money and worked all that hard and get to the end and you don't get a diploma because it's just a piece of paper. Or you scrimp and you save and you put down a down payment and you make your payments and your payments for 30 years and you get the deed to your house, but the the mortgage company says, ah, it's just a piece of paper. You buy a product that comes with a warranty. Okay, bad example. (laughs) But you get the idea? It's not the piece of paper. It's what the piece of paper represents. To go public with a vow. To go on the record before God and our society and say, this is a commitment I am making and I will be held accountable for it. That's marriage. And that's why the writer to Hebrews says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all sexual immorality. To be honored. To be kept pure. And that means, that means any relationship outside of that covenant that involves sex is wrong. Because sex outside of the marriage covenant minimizes the value and the impact that it has on the soul. And that's why it's a distortion. And I've heard all kinds of excuses over the years, folks. Well, they're in a bad marriage. Well, the divorce isn't final yet. But, you know, when it is, we're going to... Please. Who are you trying to kid? You see, marriage is a covenant that God designed. It is not merely a human institution. Now, we as a society have set about how to do it, but the design is God's. And that means, and that means that it must be by God's definition. Not societies. Not our cultures. It must be defined by God's design. And I have researched and I have studied. And I've done my best to understand this. But I can find no other theologically honest interpretation than this. Marriage is husband and wife male and female. And there is no other definition in Scripture given. And I know that that is a hot-button topic. 
And I'm glad it's in my last point. Because <laughs> the question is raised, particularly in our state at this time, what about homosexuality? What about it? And I'm just going to say three things about this, and then I'm going to close. The first thing that I truly believe is that God does not love the homosexual any less than he does a heterosexual. I'm going to say that again. God does not love a homosexual any less than a heterosexual. They are people in God's eyes. And when he looks at us, he always looks at us through eyes of love and grace. And I am heartsick at the way some professing Christians have treated the homosexual community. I'm heartsick at it. And the signs and the yelling and all the stuff that has gone on. And to pick one particular sin and make that the one that we decide to crusade against. Now, please, I am not changing my position. I know what God designs and how God defines marriage. But we must understand that we are all people in God's sight. And we are all sinners in desperate, desperate need of grace. And as his church, we can do no less. We must love and care for and engage with anyone. Second thing I believe is that whatever anyone's urges, and I don't know all the science of it, okay? I'm not going to even go there because I, I, I am ignorant of those things, semi-ignorant. But I will say this. Whatever anyone's urges, whatever anyone's inclinations, even what any, uh, anyone's predispositions might be, we are all, we are all held accountable for our behavior. We are all held accountable for our behavior. In fact, as I've studied and looked through this and, and tried to understand it as best I can, it seems to me, and I, and I may be wrong, but I, I don't think I am, it seems to me that when it talks about homosexuality in Scripture, it is always referring to the acts of homosexuality. It is the behavior that God speaks against. The emphasis is on the activity. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And stick with me, okay? Because he's talking about the kingdom of God. And he says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor prostitutes, nor practicing homosexualities, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. That's a really long list. And it's just a partial list. But what he is saying is, it is our activities, 
and our behaviors that violate the design of our sexuality. And so within marriage, God calls us to fidelity. And outside of marriage, God calls each and every one of us to chastity. And in either marriage or outside of marriage, he calls all of us to purity. And anything less than that is sin. But here's the good news. There is enough grace for all of us. We are all guilty. In fact, Jesus, when he was questioned about the whole thing, he said, you know, it's what's going on on the inside. It's it's where you go with your thoughts. It's how you play them out, even in your own mind. So every one of us in this room is guilty on some level at some time in our life of sexual immorality. We are all guilty. We are all in desperate need of grace. And here is the good news. But you were washed. This is the continuation of that sentence. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let me read it to you in the New Living Translation. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by the calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is grace. And that is the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.